0: I very much hope that once uh, humanity will recognize that we are not alone, uh, we will think uh, in broader terms, uh, more ambitious terms, more constructive terms, because we are all in the same boat. That's what I, re- I realized when I went to the Pacific Ocean uh, just a couple of months ago. You know, I was in a boat with uh, uh, a lot of professionals, and everyone selflessly contributed to the success of the mission. And uh, it just gave me a metaphor for the way that we humans are, uh, you know, inhabiting the same boat, Earth, that moves through the ocean of space. And if we recognize that, that we are actually all in the same boat as part of the human species. I'm Doug Bobst,
1: personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. Avi is professor of science at Harvard University, the longest-serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation within the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He also chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and serves as the science theory director for all initiatives of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation as well as former Chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies. Avi is also an author of eight books and over a thousand scientific papers, and he's also an elected Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronautics. In 2012, time-selected Avi as one of the 25 most influential people in space. Today on the show, we discuss why he thinks extraterrestrial life exists that can interact with humans, Avi's recent expedition to the Pacific Ocean to find what he believes is the first interstellar meteor, how he envisions a future interaction with extraterrestrial life, why AI might play a pivotal role in communicating with extraterrestrial life, whether or not Avi thinks life on Mars exists, how the average person can spot extraterrestrial life, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Avi Loeb to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Avi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. I'd love to jump right in and get into the Million Dollar Question. Based on your research, based on your knowledge, based on your opinion, do you believe that extraterrestrial life exists that can interact with humans?
0: Yes, I think uh, it's arrogant to think otherwise uh, uh, because uh, there are billions of uh, planets uh, with conditions similar to Earth around stars like the sun. And uh, moreover, you know, we know that most of those stars formed billions of years before the sun. And so uh what we did for the past 70 years was search for radio signals, which is basically equivalent to waiting for a phone call. Uh, nobody may be calling when you are waiting for it because perhaps those who transmit the signals did it at a different time. Um And uh, a better approach is to search for packages that may have arrived at our front door or any objects that came to our backyard from the street. That's another way of learning about a neighbor. And the good news is that the senders do not need to be alive at the time that you are finding those packages. It's just like space archeology, span you're looking for relics from those guys. And um, and the the other good news is that any chemical rocket of the type that we launch to interstellar space uh, is moving at the speed that is well below Uh, the escape speed from the Milky Way galaxy. So these are trapped by gravity to the Milky Way and they keep accumulating over billions of years from all technological civilizations that ever existed and littered interstellar space with probes. Uh, Most of them may be space trash. It's just like plastics in the ocean that they keep accumulating over time and when you find a a piece of plastic you know that there is a technological civilization on one of these shores that makes those. Uh, And so that approach was never practiced uh, except for the past decade and that's what i'm uh, basically trying to pioneer here the this approach and since it's a path that was not taken we might find low hanging fruit and
1: so i guess before we get more into the weeds on that including like what these types of things might look like what are their life potential life requirements as far as like do they need you know oxygen the same stuff that humans do here on earth obviously i think a lot of humans get their view on extraterrestrial life from science fiction movies. Like whenever I think of extraterrestrial life, I think of you know the movie Independence Day or I think of E.T., you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, things like that, which I know you've you've talked about in your latest book that that's clearly it's not it's not the case. How do you view extraterrestrial life compared to how most other people
0: to. Well, uh, yeah, I, as you alluded to, I, I, I don't like science fiction because very often the storyline violates the laws of physics. And people often talk about new physics. <laughs> well, it's not easy to get uh, by new physics. Uh, as of now, we're, you know, for decades trying to uh, find very small deviations from physics as we know it. And uh, it's really difficult. Uh, so... Um, in those science fiction stories, very often, you know, the, you have a spacecraft that travel between stars over a human lifetime or all kinds of uh, ideas that uh, do not make much sense. And I just cannot enjoy that. I, I enjoy fiction and I enjoy doing science. And to me, um, you know, the laws of physics do not forbid interstellar travel, except uh, it may not be with uh, biological creatures. Uh, The the travelers might have a a, a technological brain, uh, artificial intelligence. That's something we are developing right now. And uh, we only had a century worth of uh, science and technology. So just imagine another civilization that is far more advanced than we are. And the advantage of sending AI astronauts is that they uh, can survive interstellar travel over long periods of time, uh, harsh conditions, they don't need nutrients, uh, they just uh, need to survive the bombardment by energetic particles in space. Uh, biological creatures were you know selected at least on earth to uh, survive uh, the conditions we find in our atmosphere and uh, they will not uh, find it very comfortable to be on a million or billion year journey through interstellar space Um, so with that perspective uh, you know I think uh, we should expect most likely that to find those uh, AI astronauts and they would be of course uh, they would not need guidance from their senders because they would be autonomous it also takes a long time to communicate with them um, and so the way I imagine an encounter is with the most advanced technologies that we possess at the moment. Of course, I cannot imagine our technologies of the future. And one opportunity to get a glimpse at them is to witness extraterrestrial technologies, to see any gadget that came from far away that represents our future, our technological future. And it may inspire us to do better uh, because we would realize that it, it, it makes miracles. You know, Um For example, uh, Moses in the biblical story, the Old Testament, uh, saw a burning bush, and that was a miracle supposed to convince Moses uh, to believe in God. And uh, a very advanced technological civilization may be a good approximation to God, because we will see a miracle. And uh, also in my book, I discuss uh, the Galileo Project that I established a couple of years ago. And uh, if I had uh, the opportunity to put the the infrared cameras that we are using uh, close to Moses, I could um, inform him as to whether the burning bush uh, is really unusual. Uh, I could measure the surface temperature of the bush. I could measure the amount of energy emitted during time and basically tell Moses whether his uh, O is justified, whether this could be a natural bush that is just burning longer than usual or something from a higher being. And that higher being, you know, uh, obviously, it could either be God or some uh, more advanced technological civilization. Uh, you know, it, it's difficult to tell the difference if you're seeing something that you cannot understand. So you mentioned that
1: you don't imagine these extraterrestrial life being like biological creatures, which totally then like changed, like that totally then was different than what I thought. Like I honestly, of course, because I I only know it through science fiction, like I imagine that. We're going to see this, uh, like, foreign, these foreign creatures that come from these different planets. And it's going to be like some of the movies
0: that we No, but let me make a caveat to what I said. Uh, just uh, um, uh, a week ago, there was a report about uh, scientists finding uh, 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 worms that survived 46,000 years in the Siberian uh, permafrost. And when they uh, rejuvenated them, uh, the worms uh, came back to life after 46,000 years. And of course, they died shortly afterwards, because their lifespan is short. But it at least shows you that maybe there are tricks by which we can extend longevity. Uh, But we need to extend it to millions or billions of years for uh, real uh, astronauts of the type, you know, uh, that we are uh, uh, to survive an interstellar journey. Given that you mentioned that a lot of what you
1: imagine is these advanced technologies, AI generated stuff that's going to come from some of these other planets. A lot of what's been created with technology, AI, et cetera, here on earth has been created because of the evolution of humans. Like, What do you believe would help create
0: stuff like that when, when the human mind and stuff isn't involved? Well, um, you see, uh, um, Alan Turing about 90 years ago came up with the, the imitation game where he imagined AI imitating humans to a point where you wouldn't be able to tell the difference in a conversation. That's the Turing test. And uh, of course, we are now getting into chat GPT and others, uh, other devices that allow us to uh, get close to that uh, uh, dream that uh, Alan Turing had. But The way I envision the imitation game is when our AI systems uh, will confront extraterrestrial AI systems and try to imitate them because they would be far more advanced. And uh, uh, they might have kinship to those AI systems uh, from far away uh, more than to us. And uh, it will offer us an opportunity to uh, uh, serve as spectators. I think humans might not be very relevant in the conversation between our AI systems and their AI systems. Um, but altogether, you know, the future would be quite different than our past because if you just think about Martin Buber, he was a philosopher uh, about a century ago, existentialist, who um, talked about the different types of interactions between human and human, between humans and an object. Uh, and then he made a distinction also between humans and God. Uh, But what he did not experience is AI systems. Uh, There were no computers for him to experience any interaction with uh, a a computer system. So um, what he missed is a new type of interaction that we're getting into these days, which is human AI and also AI AI. That's a completely new range of uh, possibilities that is being opened. And... And beyond that, what I see is a future uh, with terrestrial AI interacting with extraterrestrial AI, which would be even more fascinating to watch. And I know like, from people that
1: I've talked to, people are either indifferent, they really don't care too much about you know, extraterrestrial life, or they're kind of nervous or scared if they see something around them that might,
0: they might think is something. Well, just think about the mice in New York City. Do they care about what happens in Times Square? They don't really watch the flashing lights with interest. So, I mean, you might. What, expect- what I was going to say was, why I know, like, you
1: seem very excited. I mean, from reading your book, you're, you're, you're so enamored with the subject. You're obviously one of the smartest people in the world when it comes to this. I guess my my question
0: to you is, like, you know, what is it about this that is so exciting to you? Oh, it's the opportunity for humanity to evolve to a higher level. Uh, uh, intelligence, because it will give us this perspective, you know, we amplify tiny differences between us humans. Some of them are completely superficial, like color of a skin, ethnic origin, gender. You know, these are not really fundamental differences. We are all part of the human species. And perhaps if we see something so different from us that is behaving in a better way, more collaborative, more constructive, we would be inspired to do better. It's like meeting a smarter student in a class. Uh, It shows you that there is another way. And um, I very much hope that once uh, humanity will recognize that we are not alone, uh, we will think uh, in broader terms, uh, more ambitious terms, more constructive terms, because we are all in the same boat. That's what I uh, realized when I went to the Pacific Ocean uh, just a couple of months ago, You know, I was in a boat with uh, uh, a lot of professionals and everyone selflessly contributed to the success of the mission. And uh, it just gave me a metaphor for the way that we humans are, uh, you know, inhabiting the same boat, Earth, that moves through the ocean of space. And if we recognize that, that we are actually all in the same boat as part of the human species, because we see others out there Uh, Perhaps we'll start working together and uh, selflessly contributing to the success of our mission. And the question is, what is our mission? Is it really to fight each other? No, it's to uh, enhance our understanding of our cosmic environment, our universe, our immediate environment, so that we can adapt to it and use it uh, for prosperity, for the longevity of the human species. And, you know, there are things that are far more important. And if we keep uh, focusing on these uh, zero-sum games here on Earth, we might go extinct, not in the very distant future because we, we will just not pay attention to our environment. So this is really my hope. My hope is uh, to have a better future for humans because we recognize a partner out there that they behaved intelligently. And, you know, I was on a ship in the Pacific Ocean, and we can talk more about it, looking for the relics of, the first recognized interstellar meteor, just two months ago. And um, there was a filming crew on the ship. And every morning I jog at sunrise. And I did the same on the deck of that ship. And the filming crew one morning decided to follow me. And they uh, basically filmed me with a drone and so forth. And they kept asking me to continue to run uh, three times longer than I usually do, like nine miles that morning uh, for an hour and a half. Uh, And then uh, the director said, uh, Avi, you are running, but are you running away from something or are you running towards something? And I said, both. Uh, I'm running away from some of my colleagues in academia who have very strong opinions uh, without seeking evidence. And I'm running towards a higher intelligence in interstellar space.
1: Let's dive more into that journey, because I know it was pretty groundbreaking. You you shared before we recorded about some of the stuff that happened, and it's going to evolve from that. Talk a bit about what it was that was discovered. You mentioned the interstellar meteor. I believe it was called IM1, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, this is the name I gave it. It's uh, basically an abbreviation for the first interstellar meteor, IM1. But um, it was uh, actually detected by um, U.S. government uh, satellites. Uh, back on January 8th, 2014, almost a decade ago. And um, what was special about it is that it was moving very fast. Um, in fact, uh, extrapolating its velocity, uh, it, it looked as if it's not bound to the sun. Uh, if you go back in time, it came from outside the solar system. It was above the escape speed from the solar system. But uh, even outside the solar system, it was moving at 60 kilometers per second faster than 95% of all stars in the vicinity of the Sun. So it was a very fast mover. And uh, moreover, based on the government data about the fireball uh, that it created when uh, it basically uh, was moving down to the lower atmosphere of the Earth and it generated a huge amount of heat uh, that eventually caused it to explode, as, it, as often happens with objects entering the atmosphere at a high speed. Um, It was uh, possible to calculate that the material strength of this object was higher than all the space rocks documented by NASA as meteors, uh, 272 of them uh, over the past decade. So this object maintained its integrity down to the low uh, atmosphere of the Earth where the density of air is high, it was moving really fast. So the fact that it didn't disintegrate higher up in the atmosphere implied that it has a very high material strength tougher than even iron meteorites that make 5% of all the familiar space rocks so to me that was really interesting intriguing because you know if it's moving fast it may have benefited from artificial propulsion and if its material strength is tougher than iron meteorites perhaps it was made of stainless steel perhaps it's a voyager like Meteor. Imagine Voyager making its way out of the solar system and then eventually colliding with another planet far away. It would appear as a meteor. And this is not a philosophical question, what this object was, because uh, I decided to lead an expedition to try and retrieve the materials from this meteor. And uh, um, obviously, um, you know, it's a very challenging task because the ocean where it exploded uh, is two kilometers deep. And, um, um, and then uh, the idea was to look for those molten droplets from the surface of the object when it was exposed to the immense heat from the fireball. The fireball released a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy into 500 kilograms. So it melted the material and uh, we were looking for these molten droplets roughly millimeter in size. These are called spherols, usually. And uh, uh, the region uh, that was defined by the US uh, Department of Defense was 10 kilometers on a side. So what we did is build a sled that is one meter wide, uh, 200 kilograms in in mass. And we covered it with magnets on both sides and put it on the ocean floor and then uh, dragged it uh, with the ship um, Through a cable that was attached to the ship and the sled. And the first challenge was to keep the sled on the ocean floor so that it will skim the surface. Uh, But uh, at first, we couldn't get it to be on the, uh, because the cable was lifting it above the ocean floor and it was floating like a kite. But then eventually, within a couple of days, we managed to do that and we started collecting magnetic materials, particles that were attracted to the magnets and stuck on the magnets. And most of them were volcanic ash, black powder. But um, after the sixth day, uh, you know, I wrote an essay, I wrote a diary report of um, uh, 46, 44, sorry, by now uh, reports. And, uh, you know, during the expedition it received millions of uh, readers. Uh, it was translated to Spanish. There was a huge amount of interest worldwide. And uh, uh, after the sixth day, the, Title of my report was, where are the spherules? We just couldn't see them as of yet, but then we filtered out the tiny particles uh, of the volcanic ash and and looked at the bigger particles, and indeed, under a microscope, we saw spherules. And they were a fraction of a millimeter in size. They were beautiful metallic marbles that were very distinct from the background. So we collected 50 of them on the ship, and then, uh, Uh, A summer intern uh, that I had, uh, Sophie Bergstrom, here uh, at Harvard University, went through the materials uh, more carefully with tweezers and a microscope that I arranged for her. And she found uh, an additional 550, and uh, together with more spheros that other people found, we have now 727 of them. So uh, that's a large collection. Uh, These are very small. They are less than a millimeter in size and a milligram in mass. And the the next task is, of course, to figure out whether they are made of materials that are different from the solar system materials. And that means different elements, different radioactive isotopes. We can even date the material, uh, how old it is, and see if it's different from the age of the solar system. And of course, the second question after that is, whether it was technologically manufactured and just imagine Voyager colliding with a planet like the Earth and from their molten droplets from its surface, you could easily tell them apart from, uh, spheros from a rock, obviously, because they would have different, uh, elements and, uh, and different uh, radioactive isotopes. So, so the the question is whether there is any evidence for molten semiconductors, molten computer screens in those spherules that we uh, found and hopefully we'll know. So
1: what you're looking for next is to see if whatever you found is different than like average things that might be at the bottom of the ocean. You mentioned computer screens and you mentioned um, other
0: things that might be down there. Uh, Yeah. So um, in in principle, you can have geological effects on earth that uh, produce spherules and you can tell the difference between materials that uh originated from earth um and materials that came uh, in, uh, uh through air and uh, exploded because uh, in the process of evaporating those uh, you lose some elements so it's possible to even tell the difference between solar system material that was sitting on earth was just reprocessed on earth let's say with volcanoes or other means and uh and and solar system material that came through the atmosphere at a high speed in the form of a meteor. Um, But beyond that, we hope to be able to distinguish anything interstellar that came from a completely different environment uh, that is not necessarily similar to the solar
1: system. I definitely want to get into the difference between the solar system and interstellar um, because I honestly, I thought they were very much in the same um, when when I first heard the term interstellar until reading your book. But the show's called The Adversity Advantage. So what I would love to know is, you know, you're very obviously well respected in your field. I know after the the hearings and after, you know, your you're finding you've been all over, you know, media doing different interviews on different things. But you also said that part of you was running away from other academics and, and and towards something and that this is a subject that's not easy to talk about because a lot of people either don't give it the time of day, they don't believe in it or whatever. You mentioned that you run consistently you know, every single morning. Is, is that something that you do to kind of optimize your, your mental health? And what else do you do to keep yourself focused and not pay attention to some of the distractions and the negativity and some of the doubters that might be coming into your life? All right, so you're gonna brush your teeth today. And why is that? Because it's a healthy part of your day and you don't want bad teeth. I want you to take it another step and add in skincare habits to your daily routine. I have been doing it over the past few months, and I promise you, I am never going back. I am hooked on Caldera Lab and their high-performance men's skincare products. Incorporating skincare into your daily routine can be effortless, especially if you do it before you brush your teeth. This guarantees that you won't mess up your current routine while leaving your breath fresh and your face refreshed. This is what is called habit stacking and Caldera Lab makes this simple. Their formulas combine pharmaceutical grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients and are simple to use. I've been using their Regimen bundle twice a day and have already had so many compliments about the difference in my skin. Caldera Labs Regimen routine begins with their clean slate, which is their face wash and leaves all skin types refreshed. Then I add their base layer, which is a nutrient dense fortifying moisturizer to help hydrate my skin. Then I finish off with The Good, which is their highly effective multifunctional serum that helps my skin look and feel tighter and smoother. And just for our audience, Caldera Lab has an exclusive offer. This is their best offer available anywhere. Use code Doug at calderalab.com and get 20% off right now. Again, it's 20% off at calderalab.com with the code Doug to help you make your first impressions unforgettable. Now back
0: to the show. Yeah, the most important thing is I don't have any footprint on social media. So you realize that uh, in order to build a a good uh, airplane that flies far, uh, often you reduce the friction with air. You don't want it to have a lot of friction because it slows it down. So for me, what would slow me down is friction with people. I want to minimize that so I I don't go to social media. Um, The other thing is Uh, some people would like to drag me into confrontations because otherwise, you know, they would get some visibility as a result of uh, arguing with me. But uh, the approach that I take, but as of now, you know, after going through earlier stages where I didn't know this good lesson and the approach, um, you know, has a good metaphor in uh, the example of the eagles and crows. You know, the crow is the only bird that is able to sit on the back of an eagle and peck on the eagle's neck. Now the eagle doesn't waste any energy or time uh, kicking away the, the crow. What the eagle does is rise to greater heights where the oxygen level is lower so that the crows drop off the back of the eagle. And uh, that is a much more elegant approach. So, to me, rising to the greatest heights is actually following the method of science and collecting material evidence that is analyzed by the best instruments the world has to offer mass spectrometers, electron microscopes, X ray fluorescence analyzers, doing the scientific work to the best of my ability and, of course, my collaborators' ability. And then, putting it in a scientific paper that will be submitted for publication in a peer-reviewed journal that's my hope within a month and at that point i think there would be little oxygen for all the crows to peck on my neck <laughs> so you're on so you're
1: on this ship and obviously this is like something that you're very focused on that you're hoping is going to go well you're hoping that you're going to find some sort of extraterrestrial life that you can then talk about and kind of say that you know i told you so but i would imagine that even inside without paying attention to the outside world there still had to be some level of of stress or even fear of like well what if this doesn't go as planned what if it doesn't go the way that i think it's the way that i think it will
0: how did you optimize
1: your mindset and reduce fear um you know during that time
0: so you know this was a long process to get the expedition going because it uh, well, uh, it cost one and a half million dollars. We had to get that funding. And uh, one day I get an email after announcing this expedition uh, and uh, I had a Zoom call with uh, Charles Hoskinson and he said, you have the money. And moreover, he provided his private jet uh, on which we reached uh, the, the destination. And uh, when I entered the jet, uh, the pilot was waiting for me and uh, he greeted me and said, uh, welcome aboard Professor Loeb. To which I replied, you don't need to use the title professor here. I mean, you can just call me Avi because fundamentally, I'm a curious farm boy. You know, that's who I am. And I'm very proud of where I came from. And I'm nothing but a farm boy connected to nature that is curious about the world. That's who I am. And you ask anyone that knows me closely, they will tell you that that is true. And um, I maintain my childhood curiosity. So anyway, we had that funding, but then we had to arrange for the ship uh, which was fittingly called Silver Star and then uh, build the sled and uh, and then prepare the ship and you know get uh, everything to uh, and but before we went there two weeks ahead of time, I was still very worried uh, about us not finding anything and um, the coordinator of the mission, uh, Rob McCallum. Uh, who is very experienced in, uh, he's perhaps the best person in the world to to coordinate such uh, expeditions. Um, He was telling me that he will take a bottle of champagne to the ship just in case we'll we'll find something. And I said, we will never open this bottle until we find something, okay? Um, I was worried that we might not find anything. And to me, success is measured by the final product. I don't care how much we wish to do something or how much, uh, you know, how much effort we put into it. That's not relevant. What matters is whether we did it or not. And then um, after the sixth day, we haven't done it yet. And uh, I wrote this essay, Where Are the Spherals? And then uh, the following day, the geologist of the team, Jeff Wynn, came running down the stairs from the analysis room and he said, came to me because I, I was the chief scientist of the mission. And he said, Avi." We have a spiral. And I rushed up uh, the stairs and I looked at the electron micros and at the microscope there. And um, I saw the spiral and I basically hugged the person who saw it first, uh, Ryan Weed. And uh, I said, you, you just can't imagine how happy I am to see this image because we came here after a lot of effort and we found it. And then, of course, we I gave them uh, the green light for us to celebrate with champagne. But uh, until that point, I was very worried. And of course, before we went there, uh, many of my colleagues would say, uh, oh, that's just a waste of time, waste of money. Why would you do that? And I said, look, um, if you don't search, you will never find anything. You just sit back and relax. i I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm doing the heavy lifting. And by the way, I'm not using money that was allocated to science before. This is not money used for dark matter searches. And the reason I bring dark matter is uh, for two reasons. One, you know, we now know that 83% of the matter in the universe is made of a substance that we've never witnessed in the solar system. Okay. So when people tell me everything in the sky must be stones, it's clearly not the case. We know that there is dark matter for 90 years. So the people who worked on stones all their life, you know, I call that the stone age of science, where everything in the sky must be stones. They are just not open-minded. That's really unfortunate. I mean, it's their limitation. I would like to make them happy by telling them that there is matter out there that is not stones, but they don't want to listen. And they're willing to say that the U.S. government is wrong. It measured the speed of this object, Uh, three times too fast. In fact, it's three times slower because only then their model for stones matches the data. There was a paper about that as I was coming back from the expedition. And just think about it. The U.S. Space Command wrote a letter to NASA confirming the interstellar origin that was suggested in my paper with my student, Amir Siraj. And they said at the 99.999%, they confirmed that it's interstellar in origin, this meteorite. And a year later, just on the, at, the, at, at, at the day that I was coming back, a paper was published in the Astrophysical Journal after being refereed by experts on space rocks who said the, the, the measurement by the U.S. Space Command must be off by a factor of three, and only then, and for the reason that only then, our model fits the data. So the data must be wrong. So instead of revising their model, they say the data is wrong. And just think about the fact that the U.S. Space Command put their reputation on the line in an official letter. They are the authority. The U.S. Space Force are, you know, is supposed to warn the president of the United States of any ballistic missile heading towards Washington DC. If they were off by a factor of three, they would think that the missile heads to Mexico or some other country. You know, I just cannot believe. I mean, the budget of the U.S. Space Command is bigger than that of NASA. So it's easier for those scientists to say they were wrong so that everything in the sky will be stones. Well, I say, no, think twice about your model. Maybe it's not stones. And we knew already on the ship by studying the composition preliminarily of some of the spherules that they are made mostly of iron. So we already knew that it's wrong. And uh, altogether, you know, uh, it was a thrilling moment, and uh, you know, after, of course, uh, celebrating with champagne, um, I went to the deck. It was sun, sun, a sunset uh, uh, together with uh, the navigator, the party chief on on this expedition. His name is Art Wright, and he is twenty years older than me, or actually more, twenty five years older than me. And uh, we were looking at the sunset and thinking about the next expedition to to search for bigger pieces, not tiny spherules, but bigger pieces of whatever the object was, because then you can easily tell the difference between a rock and a technological gadget. The gadget would have perhaps a label on it, perhaps buttons that we can press.
1: So what's the difference between the solar system and interstellar?
0: Oh, so the solar system, basically the sun, Uh, formed out of a cloud of gas in in the vicinity that uh, was enriched by uh, an exploding star, a supernova that happened nearby and provided it with the heavy elements that we see in the sun. And the planets are just left over from the formation process of the sun. There was some change left from that transaction of making the sun and, uh, and, and that little bit of material condensed to make the planets uh, in the disk of gas that surrounded the sun as it was being made, as it formed. Um, And so um, the solar system has a unique fingerprint of an exploding star that enriched it with heavy elements. And that means that the ratio of isotopes uh, represents that exploding star, star. And then if you go to a very different... Uh, environment far away, there was a different exploding star that enriched that environment, and so um, the isotope ratios would be diff- could be different, likely to be different because that other star uh, had a different mass, different properties than the star that exploded near the solar system. So if you um, find materials, fi- by the way, this is really the first time that humans put their hands on the materials from a big object. Uh, that came from interstellar space, okay? And one thing we notice is most of the spherules are concentrated around the meteor path. Uh, Spherules per unit mass are over there, and that gives us an indication that indeed we found those molten droplets from this object. So it's historic, even if we just demonstrate that this object was interstellar, that it came from outside the solar system because it's made of materials that are different, from everything you find in the solar system. Even that by itself would be historic uh, because that's the first time that such an object was identified. Uh, But of course we have also the velocity information from the US government that indicated that to start with. Um, And then if we find that it's technological in origin that of course will have huge implications uh, for the future of humanity, for the way we envision our place in the universe and so forth. Do you see
1: humanity being able to coexist with the uh, extraterrestrial life that you were speaking about
0: earlier? The senders of any technological equipment are likely to be you know, thousands of light years away, very far away. So when you say coexist, it's not like having a next door neighbor that can knock on your door every day. Um, it takes them a huge amount of time. Now, they may not be alive, and it's just the equipment. Uh, you know, Most of it might be space trash. Um, just like plastics in the ocean that keep accumulating over time. And um, so all we will learn is uh, we receive the package uh, at our doorstep and the the package has some uh, address on it. And it has some uh, uh, materials in it uh, that represent the sender. Uh, But it's not as if we will have an interaction with the sender, unless, of course, we're talking about a device that was functioning when it crashed so
1: what's the difference between like i think back in the day they were called ufos now i think they're called uaps if i re- remember correctly what's the difference between like ufo slash uap and like a meteor or an
0: asteroid or some of the terms that people might be more familiar with so the difference is that the meteors or or asteroids or comets are objects that uh, were well known for many decades and studied by astronomers scientifically. Whereas unidentified uh, anomalous phenomena are objects that were either spotted by amateurs, you know, citizens, or by military personnel. More recently, there was there were two reports from the Director of National Intelligence about UAP, unidentified anomalous phenomena. And over the decades, there were many others. Um, and these are objects identified by military or intelligence personnel as being unidentified. In other words, they see something in their instruments or in their eyes that uh, behaves in ways that are not familiar, that uh, does not necessarily imply that it's uh, human-made. And uh, so then it's labeled as unidentified. Uh, and the question is, what is it? Uh, is it human-made or is it? Something else, or is it natural, perhaps? And um, by now there is a new office in government and in the Pentagon called the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, arrow And um, the director of that office who actually visited my home and we had a very pleasant conversation. We even collaborated on a paper. Uh, he said that he looked at the UAP reports that he had access to, and only a few percent of them are truly anomalous. That means You know, it's a mixed bag. Most of them are uh, drones, balloons, things that he was able to get to the bottom of. Um, And we know about the Chinese spy balloon that was shut down. And so there are things flying in the sky that may at first be unidentified, but after scrutiny, you might find what they are. So then they move from the unidentified category to the identified category. But it's very different from meteors or or objects interstellar objects that um, are spotted by um, telescopes looking up or by satellites looking down. And these are real objects that we know are moving at a very high speed uh, because the speed is measured. Uh, In fact, that's how their interstellar origin is, is identified, because they are moving faster than the escape speed from the solar system. They're very different than UAP. UAP are moving much slower. Uh, And at least those that were looked at uh, from from the ground. And so um, uh, the difference is that as a scientist, you know, I was intrigued by Oumuamua, I was intrigued by the interstellar meteor because they appeared in astronomical data sets. And as as an astronomer, uh, I was intrigued by those objects that looked different. And I came to discuss uh, UAP from there. And that's why I established the Galileo Project, which... uh, it basically used uses a new type of observatories to monitor the sky twenty four seven and see if we can get to the bottom of the nature of those uap How can the average person if they
1: want to pay attention to you know if they happen to see something in the sky maybe somebody has a telescope or I've had a friend that showed me a video of, of some sort where there was some like light you know chasing them, and they thought it was a you know some sort of um UFO, alien, extraterrestrial type thing. What kind of things can the average person like look for on a day-to-day basis if they want to potentially spot something?
0: Well, it needs to be uh, moving in ways that are unusual and, uh, and not familiar. So what we are doing in the Galileo project, are, we are addressing exactly our question in the scientific way. So we have instruments that we have full control over that we calibrate. And they just monitor the entire sky all the time. And that allows us to see objects that we are familiar with. Uh, these objects are birds, uh, drones, balloons, airplanes. And then if we see something different, we should be able to compare it to the familiar objects in a systematic way. We will know how rare it is. And so this is really the best way to approach it systematically, not uh, anecdotically, uh, the way that the pilots or Uh, intelligence officers were reporting about these things they happen to be at the right place at the right time by chance but we are actually placing observatories in many locations that's the goal such that we will find anomalous objects on the background of familiar objects now for the average person of course (laughs) the average person doesn't have such an observatory available so I guess um, you can judge for yourself if you're seeing something unusual but for us to be sure what it is we really need the be- uh, very good and stable instruments uh that, that the Galileo project already put together i know a lot of science is based on like hypothesis and just
1: gathering data and being able to generate like a belief or a thesis you know based on you know something that you're able to test when it comes to Let's just say that you this you end up find that you end up finding out this you believe that this meteor came from somewhere in the interstellar and that you are going to test to make sure that that's what it is.
0: Like, what do you have to go off of? Well, so science is guided by evidence. It's not a matter of belief. Um, so the idea is, in the case of the materials that we collected, for example, we can study their composition and with the instruments in a laboratory and. And figure out if they are made of the same materials as the solar system, and in that way we can convince ourselves. Uh, we can also convince other scientists because this kind of knowledge can be shared by all humans. It's not a matter of belief. Once you follow the steps of the analysis, anyone should agree with it if the analysis was done correctly. If the uh, if we keep seeing the same patterns in many different spherals that are along the meteor path, then Clearly, they came from the same object. And if the material is different from solar system, then we know it's interstellar. stellar. That's really simple. Um, And so it's just like, you know, you go out to your backyard and you're familiar with rocks that might be out there in your backyard. But uh, every now and then you might find a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor and it would look different. So the key is to study it so that you can tell the difference. Do you think that there's life on Mars? Uh, yeah, what I'm really curious about is um, there are caves on Mars. These are called lava tubes. They were created by uh, lava flowing on the surface of Mars, and then the crust uh, solidified, and the central uh, flow uh, went through, so you end up with a cave, a, a tube. We see that in Hawaii. And my I, I'm particularly curious because Mars, until two billion years ago, had an atmosphere. Okay, it lost its atmosphere be- because its uh, surface gravity is just uh, two-fifths of the surface gravity of Earth. And uh, it it just wasn't sufficiently strong. Uh, uh, I mean, gravity was not strong enough to keep the atmosphere. So it lost it, and then all the liquid water on the surface of Mars disappeared. But life could have started on Mars even before it started on Earth. And just imagine a scenario where... Um, life progressed uh, twice as fast on Mars than it did on earth so that um, a few billion years ago there were humans or intelligent creatures on the surface of Mars it just requires a factor of two because Mars had habitability uh, at the middle of its lifespan so far um, and in that case what can we look for so my uh, I'm particularly curious uh in sending probes, uh, like drones with a camera and, and some li- lights, uh, into the caves, into those uh, lava tubes, and checking for any paintings on the walls of the type of prehistoric paintings, or checking for any skeletons that may have been preserved there, because these tubes are actually uh, much better at preserving relics than the surface of Mars. The, There are huge temperature variations on the surface, hundreds of degrees between day and night. The surface is bombarded by energetic cosmic rays all the time. So actually, if we want to go to Mars, we better occupy these caves. Uh, And it would be ironic because we started in caves on Earth. Avi, this
1: has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I think the audience is going to really enjoy this conversation. If people want to follow along with what you're doing with the Galileo Project or your recent uh, quest to the Pacific Ocean, or if they want to buy a copy of your latest book, where's the best place to do that?
0: Uh, well, the, the book is available at all uh, uh, outlets that sell books. Uh, more about me can be found on medium.com. I have a, a, a place there, uh, Avi Loeb at medium.com, where I post uh, my essays regularly. And on my professional website at Harvard University, you can find more information about my research. I'm still uh, 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 writing scientific papers quite frequently on an, a number of subjects, including black holes, the first stars in the universe, which was a frontier that I pioneered uh, about two decades ago. And I was also among the people who designed the Uh, Web telescope uh, when it was conceived uh, almost three decades ago.
1: I will make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes and wanted to thank you again for your time and I really enjoyed this conversation. Same here. Thanks for having me.